All right, well, my name is Lisa Romig. I teach at um, Austin Ridge, which is just down the road southwest. I actually teach precepts on Thursday morning. And I am right now in Ecclesiastes. We just kicked the book off last week. So all my students are deep into Solomon and I made them do all the work for Solomon before we ever got to the book. So anyway, so that's what I was doing last week. It is a privilege when someone like Katie asks you to take their class because Katie is an exceptional person. There are very few teachers I have ever encountered in my whole life that one, know scripture, two, is incredibly talented at laying out a foundation and doing it over and over and over. One of the things you don't know is as a teacher, when we teach a lot and we do these things, sometimes as a student, the repetition gets old and dry. But as a teacher, you don't realize this, what God has gifted her with to be able to do it over and over and over again, because she approaches every book as a new book. She's never opened it before. And that's one of the things I really love about her. The very first thing she told me after she gave me my first set of markers, um, very first thing was she said, don't ever assume you know what the word of God says when you open a book. Start with fresh manna every day. First thing she told me, I've stayed with that. So when she asked me to take her class, I printed off my worksheets, my observation worksheets, and did the homework. So, you know, that's exactly right. We start every time um, with the class because God has a fresh word and a fresh understanding for who you're teaching. And so that's one of the things I just want you to realize. I, Katie has been so inspirational in my life. Most of you know this, but for those that don't, I came out of the Mormon faith. I had complete understanding that was not right. And it took me a long time to get things where I understood them. And Katie just consistently and lovingly taught the word of God. I came to class, I'd ask her questions and she helped me unravel that mess. And it took 12, 13 years of just consistent work for me to get out of that. And so if you've been a part of Bible study and you're like, how long am I going to do this? Just keep at it. Um, Lord, the Lord is always moving us in different directions and that. And when I knew it was time for me to start teaching, I had been asked to teach. I asked Katie, she showed up with flowers, new markers and said the fresh manna thing. And she was extremely supportive. So I just want you to understand she is a remarkable woman. I consider it an honor to be here. Um, and yeah, and she can owe me lunch if you listen, Katie. So anyway, all right. All right, I want to talk about the author of Revelation. So let's talk about it. I always warm my students up. I like think we should warm up our muscles, so we'll start with some easy questions. Who is the author of Revelation? John. All right. Who is John? He's an apostle. Yep. Mm-hmm. Bond servant's an interesting word. Anybody? want to dip their toe in that? What does bondservant mean? It means he gets to stand in authority of the one who sent him. So he has the full capability, the full authority of the one who sent him. So um, in this book, who sent him? Jesus, full authority. Um, so I love that. So apostle and a bondservant. All right. So he was one of the 12 disciples, right? In case you didn't know. Older or younger than all the disciples? Youngest. Okay. 
So I want you to think about this. If you don't know this about Jewish culture, I just want to give you this picture of who John is. So John would have at the table his position because of who he was um, in Jewish tradition, being the youngest, he would have sat right next to Jesus consistently at the tables and everything else. That's where he would be located. He was allowed to ask any question of God or of Jesus at the time because that's the way that they, he would have had as the youngest, that would have been his position. He, he could do that. So I should explain a little bit about John um, and some of the things you see in writing. So let's do a timeline because I love timelines. All right. Where is Revelation written in the timeline? So if this is creation, where is Revelation written? After the cross. We know about, I'm going to say around uh, 90 years or so after the cross, roughly. All right. What is John talking about? The very end. All right. So I'm just going to draw a line. In Revelation, you are going to have so much fun doing mapping, but we'll just draw a line. So I'm going to say these are end-time events. And what kicks off the major end-time events that we're all waiting for? The return, right. The rapture, yes. <laughs> but the return of Jesus, right. Jesus comes down. Okay. All right. So I just wanted to point that out to you. So let's do a little bit with John. So, yes. No, no. Uh, 90 years after the cross. Oh, you're right. That couldn't happen that way. You're right. He would have been. Thank you so much. You're right. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I think it's 45 years now that I say that. Yeah, you are correct. Thank you so much. It's in the notes. We'll get to it, and I'll correct it. Um, so real quick, with Jesus and the cross and at the end time events, how did John see Jesus in his life? Let's list out all the ways he saw Jesus. He saw him as the son of God? Mm-hmm. As Savior. So where did he first meet him? Which side of the cross? Before. So John saw him before the cross. Okay. Where else did John see him? After the cross. Okay. And where's the final place that Revelation talks about? In, in time events, right? He saw him at the end. Would you say that John had an incredible understanding of who Jesus was? That is the point I was trying to make. So when we study these scriptures and when we are doing interpretation, I want you to understand, when I look at all the people that could have written or the ones with Revelation, John is the one, I think, who has the most understanding of who Jesus was. He saw Jesus before the cross as rabbi teacher. He saw Jesus ascended after the cross. And he saw in Revelation, as you all have been studying, him as the Savior, King, the Son of God, in his full authority. Now, this is kind of fun in terms of just thinking about all this stuff. Because when we get into these discussions and as we go through chapter 1, chapter 2, and we get into uh, all the interpretation that I want you to understand, he had no doubt of who Jesus was. A lot of people will say these books and stuff, we don't know. I was taught, and again, I come from um, the Mormon understanding. I was taught that this was a book that um, just kind of happened to make it in. It really wasn't important. Okay? Do you think it's an important book? 
because it helps you understand who he really is. So again, I want you to understand this book was written from John's perspective, but it also helps you understand who Jesus really is. Okay. All right. So let's get into why, what was John told he was supposed to do when he wrote this book? What was the reason for writing this book? He's right to the churches. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's right. Um, in fact, if you go to Revelation 119, right there for the things that you've seen, those that are and those that will take place after this. So John was told he was supposed to write. Okay. All right. You guys have spent a lot of time. So again, warming up. Tell me yes, what I'm, you've learned so far with Revelation. I'm on a I'm on Zoom. So yes. I know. I see all your notes. I love it. Yes. It's written to the church. Yep. At noon. That's right. This whole message originated with God. Yes. At noon. I'm on Zoom. I go to the hearing. I love the word soon. These things will soon take place. How many years has it been? Down about 12 o'clock and raise the deposit for you. Yes, please. I'll be there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yep. Anytime. <laughs> yep. At the appointed time. Yep. That's exactly right. Most of us assume that things will take place in an orderly fashion and that the temple will be built in an orderly fashion. It could be supernaturally done, could be. That's what we always have to leave the possibility because we are dealing with God. So, yes. That's right. It's supposed to be left alone. Yep. Yep. All right. And what else? Yep. To heat him. I love that word. Most people don't think of Revelation as an overcoming book. They just want to get into the, ooh, I love it. New Christians, the first thing they say, I want to study Revelation. And you're like, okay, let's try, I don't know, John. Let's work with that first. Let's work with the gospel and see if you can get love. And then we'll talk about end time events. But this is one of those things that I just love in terms of it has such a pull to it. It is the ending. It is what most people want to know what's going to happen. But then why, when you know what's going to happen, there's a responsibility. Because if you understand who Jesus really is and that he's coming back to earth and that he will rule and reign, what is your responsibility? Your responsibility to those around you because he's coming back. Yeah. And so it's one of those things that once you know, you know, you can't take it back. You know. Right? All right. Sounds like Katie's been doing her job well. All right. So we're going to dip our toe into Ephesus. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm going to start with the very beginning to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes. So I'm going to write Ephesus up here. You guys were asked to do some research about what Ephesus was like. But before we go too much further, I want to just point out Ephesus is probably um, referred to the most. And it actually uh, has a letter written to it. How, what is the letter in the New Testament that is correlated with Ephesus? Very good. So those two are correlated. I want you to understand that's the church that we're talking about. In case you're like, I want more information, that would be your parallel book. 
All right, so tell me some things about Ephesus when you did your work this week that you found. Very good, Artemis. And what is she? Fertility, the hunt, right? Let me see, I have it all in my notes. Uh, she's the goddess of the hunt, chastity, childbirth. Huh? That's right, they don't go together. <laughs> and then later there's some understanding that this was the Romans idea of the goddess Diana. Um, just so you know. So I'm curious, let's talk about Artemis. So what did they do for this god? They built a huge temple. That's what they were known for. Absolutely huge temple. It burnt down. What did they do? They built a bigger one. Isn't that interesting? So would you say that that is probably the foundation of this area's belief system? Now, if you've never talked about temples, I want to explain to you what happens. This type of temple would have had trade outside of it, and all the roads would have led to it. So you would have been passing by it every day. You would have seen it. Um, when I was in um, Lebanon, somebody asked me, they're like, do you want to see the Temple of Baal? And I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and I was thinking a nice stone building, you know, it was in the north, uh, close to Syria. And I was thinking that it was 20 football fields, all made out of stone. And that's what I'm telling you. When we're talking about these things, for us, we're thinking temple. I want you to understand, temple, you know, understand everything went through here. It was their life, okay? And that was one of the things I walked through there and the stones, it was so funny because Americans, and I learned different people have different uh, cultures, have understandings. Um, our tour guide, he'd look around and he goes, more old stuff, more old stuff. I'm like, this is where they sacrifice people. And he'd be like, it's old stuff. It's old stuff over there too. And it was like, people were jumping on the stones and all that. And I was like, we'd be behind plexiglass. We'd have to go through security. Nope, there was just white out in the open and people up and down and walked all over it. And this is one of the things I will tell you. That's the understanding in terms of how big it was, how impressive it was. Everything would have gone through that culture. Everything would have gone through the temple. It would have been a part of everything. So Ephesus at the time of Paul was the fourth largest city in the world. All right, so it was one of those things that had politics, religion, and a commercial center. For those of you who are super smart, and if you know the history of Katy, you will find this out. Um, where is Ephesus? It's in Turkey, correct. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. It is. So this is interesting. It was located on a seaport. However, due to just age and that, it no longer is. They've moved it inward, but it originally had, was on a seaport. And it sat at the, and I don't know if I'm saying it right, Caster River, Caster River, uh, and then Meander and Hermes River. So it had access to all of that. So what did it have? It had a civic center. It had another temple. It had gymnasiums. It had public baths. It had a theater that sat 24,000. Had a library. It was known for its library. It had streets. I think that's really important to note. It had paved streets. It had private residences. Help you kind of understand, yes. Um, when I was in Europe, I saw that Ephesus and Vienna, their archaeology is really 
Ta-da! You could come and see it. <laughs> it is fascinating, isn't it? To think that's how people conquered things and just talking about kingdoms. So Jesus starts out with the first church and what's the first church he mentions? This one, which was supposed to be the head of, yep, he has pointed out, this is it. He knows them by name. I just love that. So here is, and if you think about hierarchy, the God of the universe has called out the church, even though it looks huge on paper, it is church in his world. So anyway, just point that out. All right. So the temple that they built was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. Okay. All right. Paul had visited Ephesus in 53 AD. Ephesus played a very significant role in the spread of early Christianity. You guys all know this. I'll name you a few famous people from the New Testament. Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, and John had all been instrumental in the development of the church there. At the time of Paul, Ephesus was the fourth largest city. I love this. Ephesus is mentioned more than 20 times in the New Testament. So would you say it is a prominent church just from that? Absolutely. Paul stayed and preached the gospel so effectively that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the area heard the word of the Lord. And you'll find this in Acts 19.10. And it says, Paul's teaching continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I love that. For two years, he stayed and preached so that everyone would know. Okay. This large city was so stirred by Paul's message, it continues on, the result was that the silversmiths created a riot because their business of making shrines and idols of Artemis was threatened. Any of you remember that story in Acts? What happened? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This is our life. That's right. This is our livelihood. So think about it this way. I don't have really a great example, but I'm going to use this. Austin just kicked off its first football club. The FC, and everywhere I go, I see the memorabilia and all that. Just think if there was uh, somebody out there preaching against the football club and all the people who had all those artifacts who were making money off of selling that, what would they probably do? They would bind together and fight it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of fun, though, to think about. Now, again, I'm not against the football club. Don't, yeah, don't, that, that's not what I'm just using an example. Okay. All right. Okay, the other thing was, was because of Artemis and some other stuffs, they had evil spirits and magic in the city. And then, of course, at the ends of Acts 19, it says, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books, burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it was 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of God continued to increase and prevail. I love that. So what do you already know about Ephesus? Do you think it was a comm center? When, when Christianity moved in? <laughs> Think about some of the discussions we have today with our fellow people out there in terms of, here they come in, people are going away their books of magic. They're not really caring about the cost of that. They're stopping the production of all the artifacts. 
Do you think people that weren't Christian were worried? Very much so. Very much so. All right. And in Ephesians 1, Paul commended them for something. What were they known for? The church. What was it known for? Mm -hmm. Their deeds? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the other thing they were known for was their love. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us. You are known for your love. Were you going to say something? I'm sorry. Okay. Hey, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too. Well, I'm glad you're here. All right. So they were commended for their love. Now I find that interesting. Spoiler alert. What did Jesus have issue with with them? <laughs> yeah, isn't that interesting? They were known for their love with Paul and Jesus is calling them out for their love. I love it. That's what they were known for. Um, so we're going to get into that in a second. Because we're kicking off the churches, I want to make sure that you guys have some understanding. Katie may have covered this. So if so, I'm, that's great. If not, um, I should be the one also to help you. There's some wordology here that we should just look at. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, what does angel mean? Messenger. Absolutely. It means messenger. That is the word, messenger. So here's the question. You guys have probably heard this. How is this usually interpreted or could be interpreted? As a real angel, but how do also people look at this? You may have heard this. As a pastor. Okay. I want to say, tell you that because uh, Katie may come in and say that. I don't want you to, to think. Some people think that he's speaking directly to the pastors. If you want to think of an angel, in my opinion, it means messenger. To the messenger of the church at Ephesus. Okay. And again, whether it's the elder over the church, whether it's the angel um, of the church, there's an accountability. And that's really all we're getting at right here. Okay. So a few things about the churches. Let's talk about them. How many churches are mentioned? I'm going to write this up there. Can you see me? Yeah. All right. Seven. Ha! Huh, that's a strange number. Never saw seven before ever. Right? All right. So we know the first one is Ephesus. And we know that they're known for their love. And we also know that they are a very large church. And... Um, they are one of the oldest. Okay. So that's one of the first things, Ephesus. That's the one we're going to stick with. All right. Some other things. Now, Ephesus also had a long history, um, which is one of the things we're going to talk about. Why do you think God picked these seven churches? Because there were more than seven. Why these seven? So I love what you said. There was what? Or, or did you say it? Order? order. Oh. There was an order. Hmm. Really? With God, there's order? Oh, really? Oh, wow. So there was a collective order. I want to write that out. I love that. You are exactly right. There's a collective order here that you're seeing as well. It's not a mistake that they're in here. People should know them. But there's something very specifically why they were selected and listed here. 
Do you think that their characteristics and situations are the same that the churches face today? So if we study these seven churches, what are we going to know more about? Our church, ourselves, and specifically about someone higher than us. We are going to know what God's will was for the churches, right? Now, here's the thing. When you read Revelation, it should convict you. And these are things like when I was studying this specific one on Ephesus, I was reminded again of how much we get so caught up in so many things that aren't necessarily bad, but they're not exactly what God called us to do. And so we have to be vigilant against those things. And that's kind of what we're going to see here. All right. And it says, after all the churches, there is a line. What is it that uh, is said after every church? Uh-huh. He who has ears, let him hear. Love that phraseology. He who has ears, let him hear. I used to teach communication. There's a big difference between hearing and listening. Kind of the same idea. You. I know you hear the words coming out of your mouth, my mouth, but you need to be listening to what I'm saying. Um, yeah, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and I love this, to all the churches, listen and take heed, right? So Ephesus kicks them off. There is some sort of collective order to them, absolutely. The characteristics and situations the churches that face today, so it speaks to us currently, and it's God's will for the churches and how they were supposed to operate. This is one of the things I find fascinating because, again, um, we live in this day and age. There's a big movement several years ago for non-denominational churches. Well, guess what happens when you have a whole bunch of non-denominational churches? They become denominational at some point of non-denominational because we like order. And that's the best example I can give you. So now we have a bunch of non-denominational denominations. Okay? And again, why is the reasoning of that? Because now we're past the first generation, we're into the second generation, we're into... So I want you to understand, what you're seeing in these churches is not the first generation. Now you're seeing the second generation of people who have come up. They probably do not have a first eye testimony that's based on other believers. And so they are coming up in the church. And so again, this is why some of these churches are being called out specifically, so that people would understand, again, what the purpose of the church was. Okay, and what is the purpose of the church? To reveal God to who? Mm-hmm. What are we? Specifically, at the end time events, what are we? We are his children. Yep, children and ambassadors. Big word with a B. He's the groom. You're the. You're very important. You have to show up. Okay, I want you to understand. That's how high he thinks of the church. So when you see these uh, specific things mentioned, I want you to understand it is the best understanding. He is the groom. He has died for the church, and this is the bride. Respect, 
love, nourishing, all the things that we see over and over again. But I want you to understand right now, he's calling them out and also saying, okay, I'm going to call you out because as a covenant partner, it is my responsibility to call you out. Okay. All right. I have to tell you, if I got a word from God saying you need to do some different things. All right. So just so you understand, I, I think we're, my, the church I attend is classified as a non-denominational, but we have the same issues as every denomination because we're a denomination of non-denominationals. Um, the wording doesn't matter because we're churches and churches experience the same things no matter where you are. It's interesting, if you did not know this, there's a huge influx back to um, Orthodox Christianity. So we have done a spiral back to... Because people are needing ritual, they're needing understanding of God's word. This is something I find fascinating just in my watching people in that. People want some knowns in their life. Because we are created by God to have order. Isn't that fascinating? And so they're searching the churches. Anyway, that's just a freebie. All right. Church's similarities. So when you're reading the churches, we're kicking this one off. We're going to get into the text in just a few minutes. I want to talk about the similarities. What is it that each one of these churches, God, uh, uh, God has spoken to them or Jesus has said? What is it about each one? Yep, who he is. What they're doing well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that and I'm so glad you said that because what is one of the things that you hear constantly with people's understanding of God today if they're not in the church or they don't have regular teaching what do they say quite honestly he just up there he just set the world up and let it run I just find that interesting um, one of the things I taught a couple of, uh, I taught Titus and I met with Katie right before I did. And I set out for my students. I said, Titus is a book of order for the church. This is how the church is supposed to be set up. Let's talk about, and everybody's mentioned in Titus. So everybody's got a role in the church. So we talked about that. And then the second thing that I find interesting is I said, here's the order for the church. I said, let's talk about end time events. What do you know about end time events? You're going to study in Revelation. Is there order? Absolutely. What do most people think? It's complete chaos. I love that. No, that is not your God. I don't know who that is, but that's not God. I know it's Satan, but you know, that is not God. Um, God has a complete order that he is going to follow and you can count on that. Okay. Each one includes a promise to you should overcome. Isn't that great? 
Sometimes um, with the, what they are doing while well, I'm going to write commendation, it's kind of a strange word. Mm-hmm. You'll get a reproof or a rebuke. I'm just going to write those as the same idea. Uh-huh. Um, you said instruction. I missed the first part. Warning. Warning. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they get an exhortation. And then they get, uh, I love this, they get a promise or reward. Now, <clears throat> let's talk about who Jesus is. Before Jesus died, he made a request of Peter. What did he tell Peter to do? And he is referred to as the great shepherd, correct? All right. So whose is the church? Yep. So it is Jesus's. I want to make sure you understand. The people that we see coming down the, the line, Peter, then Paul, and then you see John, just so you understand, they are bond servants. Who are they bond servants to? I want you to get that because he still holds this collective bride as his. Okay? So never forget that this is his church. He is very specific about all of those uh, ideas and things that are happening in them. But when you study all seven churches, you're going to have a long list of this. And you're going to see more and more about who he is. Okay? Any questions? All right. Let's jump into Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lamps stands, say this. I'm going to stop right there. All right. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Why were they writing letters? Didn't have internet, didn't have social media. It's the best I got. We're going to write a letter. Okay. All right. I always think this because I think it's important people know this. Did something happen? Oh, okay. Um, I think it's important people know this. It's very, the time in history in which God himself put these events is also so that it could be a pure understanding of who he was. Um, studying communication in that, the more we mass media it, the more we mass media a message, the diluted it gets. So I love that this is a letter, the one I write. So if you have a letter, there's always a sender and a, right, there's always a recipient, okay? So I want you to understand that. So John is writing it, and this is what it says is the subject. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who are they referring to? And who are the seven stars? Seven churches. Very good. It could be the seven angels of the seven churches, but the same idea. It's his church. And where does he hold him? Okay, so let's talk about this. Nobody's ever told you. Why is it the right hand? Culturally. Huh? Right hand of power. Left hand is not considered your, you, you don't use your left hand ever. It's always right hand. That custom still exists today all over the world. It's always right hand. Okay? It is the preferred hand. Um, again, uh, that's one of the things to know that when you see that, it is a power of authority. It is a sign. It's always the right hand. 
Okay. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All right. So what's that reference to? The churches, the seven lampstands. All right. So now you have seven and seven. So what do you think about that number seven? Completion, Completion can be. Uh-huh. Um, I got, when in Daniel, we got to talking so much about end time events, my students literally would just say, the answer's seven. I'm like, no, it's Jesus, but thank you. But it's seven. I know it's seven. I, all right. So seven anyway, but that's a, a good one to know. All right. So he's already set up who he is. The one who holds the seven stars and the one who monks, uh, walks among the seven gold lampstands. We've already said this. He knows what's going on in his churches and he knows the leadership and he's called out these seven churches specifically. All right. So let's write out exactly um, some of these things that they do. All right. Sure. Mm -hmm. Correct. All right. So let's talk about the lampstand. I'm not a great artist. Okay. What does a lampstand look like? For those of you who don't know. Mm -hmm. But it is not a menorah. And if you go and buy a menorah, a menorah has nine. A lampstand has seven. I made that mistake. I bought a menorah from Target thinking I was so cool. Went home, counted it. Went, that's not right. Okay. In case you do. Okay. All right. So if you want to think of it this way, Isaiah 11 tells us the fear of the Lord is kind of the base of your knowledge in that with the lampstand. What did the lampstand represent? For those of you who have a little biblical knowledge, great. If not, we'll fill in the blanks for you. Where was it located? In the temple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was to be kept burning. Uh-huh. It's the only light in the temple. So I want to make sure you understand real quick. It's the temple slash tabernacle because they had this piece when they were in the desert. It was a form of worship. It had to be in their um, holy of holies. So about the size of a football field, they would sacrifice animals, and then the priest would go into the holy of holies. In the front entrance area, there was a lampstand, which provided light to the whole area. Now, again, when you walk into the Holy of Holies, um, the holy place behind, and you have the mercy seat, it's all clothed up with curtains. Was there any light? No. God was the light. So I want you to understand there's only one light currently, and that would be your lampstand. So this provided light, and it was supposed to be kept burning constantly. Okay. We represent it in our churches as the Holy Spirit, right? That's what we talk about a lot. But it is no doubt that it is representative of light. Revelation is written, and it has a lot of imagery for Jewish tradition and Jewish worship. So a lot of what the Israelites did in the Old Testament. So if you have great understanding of the Old Testament, this will help you understand a little more. So what does the lampstand do? What's its purpose? Not what it symbolizes. What's its purpose? Illumination. Holds the light up. Yep. What was this one made out of? Gold. Yep. And uh, somebody, one of my friends went to Israel, and she said it's the one piece that they have already made to put back into the temple, and it is right next to the temple. 
Um, I have not seen it. I've seen pictures of it. She said it's covered by plexiglass and lots of guards. I would expect so um, if it's made out of gold anyway. But it's very representative. It's still symbolic. It's still symbolic. Okay. The lampstand. Mm -hmm. The lampstand is. Yep. All right. In the menorah? I have no idea. <laughs> that's a good question. I've never researched it um, to understand. But that's if you go and buy one, because they, they're very popular around Christmas time. If you go and buy one, they're nine. They're not, they don't look like this. Um, okay. There you go. She, she could tell you. Okay, I know. This is really great, though. Originally, let's go back to our first love. What was it supposed to be? Okay, <laughs> there you go. Teaching point. All right. Um, but it helps you understand this is the sort of thing that we're talking about today. Uh, we take something and then we kind of add on to it. And that is exactly, it's seven. Now, again, menorahs can be nine for the tradition that they have. Mm -hmm. Awesome. You knew. Oh, cool. <laughs> and we're posting as we're talking. <laughs> All right. Okay, so anybody have any questions about seeing Jesus as the one? Okay. All right. Some of you may be new um, to the church. Some of you may not. But I want you to understand symbolism is very important in terms of this book and also, but being the one, again, he's gonna go through the seven stars is his right hand. You're gonna talk about stars later on um, in this book as well. One who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This was all imagery that the Jewish tradition would have known. All right, so what does Jesus specifically say to them? We're gonna start in verse two. Mm -hmm. I know. All right, I know. What does he know? <laughs> uh huh. So deeds. Yeah, I'm going to write deeds, uh, toil. I'm in Ecclesiastes right now. The other word for that is labor or works and your perseverance. The church has survived. Mm hmm right right it has survived i know all of that right and then he calls them out for some other stuff that you yep they will call out evil men we might call them false teachers right uh evil men yes they could be yeah Correct. Good catch. Yeah. False teachers. Yep. And they judge correctly. They have to say, they look at these false teachers, they're able to discern correctly. Mm hmm. Right. And you put them to the test. Now, this is interesting to me. 
um, those who call themselves apostles. So what do we know? What's going on right now in the church in Ephesus from this? So I'm guessing Ephesus was one location, but it probably had lots of meanings. So what do you think is happening among them? Mm -hmm. All right, so you have leadership. And what has crept in? Uh-huh. I love this. Put to the test. If you're going to put somebody to the test, what do you have to know? <laughs> Isn't that great to understand? So if you're going to test someone, what do you have? You have to know some stuff, right? So he's, it kind of makes sense. So he knows their works. I'm just going to leave it that way. He's, he's called them out because they have uh, had and stopped evil men and false teachers. That happens. And they put to the test those who call themselves apostles. I love this. So it's a different word, by the way, evil men. Different word for apostle. What is an apostle? We just covered it. It's a bondservant. One who says, I've come from Jesus. I was called by Jesus. They have held them to the test. I love this because they are probably modeling from someone pretty popular in the New Testament who wrote lots of letters um, who do you think that they're probably modeling after when they do this? Paul. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Anyway. So, and you have found them to be false. All right. And then he keeps going. And you have, yep. Now, there's all sorts of perseverance. Okay. What does he say specifically? Mm-hmm. What does that already tell you? Mm-hmm. They absolutely are. And you have not grown. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh-huh. That's a good catch. That's very good. That's right. So that's one thing I will say. I would label this church as perseverance and enduring against what we see in Acts, which is a bunch of uh, people coming against this area because it's threatening their livelihood. Okay. All right. And so then it's kind of weird. I just want to point this out. He also, in verse 6, throws something else out. You hate the deeds of... Yeah, that's kind of weird, right? Right. Right. That's what it seems like to me, too. I had a hard time. I wanted to write Nickelodeon. Yep. Not the same thing. All right. So that's what we know that Jesus knows about them. Would you say that that's probably a good idea of what the church of Ephesus was like? Okay. All right. In case you're curious, when we get into Revelation, you keep going. He's going to call out false teachers in the first four churches. So what does a false teacher do? Attempt to lead you away from the truth. Mm-hmm. 
Sometimes, are, here's the question I'll ask, sometimes are they malice? Sometimes, is it always malice? Sometimes it's incompetence. I want you to understand they've come into the church to do that, but who is responsible for weeding them out? Would you say that there's an, uh, some things we can learn from this church in our churches today? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So this church had continued in its faithful service for more than 40 years. So I want to know, I want to just put this up here for the church of Ephesus, 40 years. So let's real quick compare that to some of our other churches today that we have. They've endured a lot longer, right? So 40 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When John is writing, they're about 40 years old. From Paul on. That's a long time, 40 years. So I would say they're no longer in infancy. They're headed towards maturity. We're seeing mature fruit from them, right? 40 years. Mm -hmm. We're on the next generations. Yep. So again, this is why we do really great Bible study and we work through one line at a time. It's just so you can see. And if you don't know what we've done, we made a list. You guys are good at lists. Katie does lists. You do a list. Um, some people who don't do Bible study very often don't know why we do these things. We do them so we know what God sees and that we can see what's going on in our own lives. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this towards the end of the lesson. Um, I want to tell you a little bit more about them. But we know specifically, it's not just evil men and false teachers or apostles. He's calling out this specific hold of whatever this was in the area. Okay? Have you gone through what a Nicolaitan is? I have. I'm sorry. That's all right. Would you like to know? No, later. Oh, no, this is good. I'll tell you now. I like this stuff. Have you already covered it? Oh, no, I haven't. I haven't covered it yet. I'm going to. I'm going to. Basically, as with all false teachers, it has to do with immorality and idolatry. We'll talk about that. Two things God cannot stand. So, immorality and adultery. Okay? All right. All right. Okay. So, he's laid this out. Would you say this is a good list? Feels good. Condemnation. Uh, condemn. That's not right. Commendation. Condemnation. That's all right. Commendation. All right. So, commendation. There you go. He's saying, this is what I know. Good job. This is what you're doing. Okay? I want to point out, too, just real quick, um, when someone gives a commendation specifically, um, and if you're curious, we can go to 1 Corinthians 4. And if you want to open up your Bibles, type it up in your things. I'm known for teaching a little bit over Scripture, so I want to go to 1 Corinthians 4. It's a weird word, commendation. You don't see it much in scripture, but I think you guys will figure out real quickly. Um, there is a person who uses the word. He was quite wordy in the New Testament. We probably know his name. Yeah. So I teach a lot of younger women that are coming up, and they all tell me, Paul is very wordy. I'm like, yep, Paul is very legalistic. <laughs> he likes to cover all his bases. Um, and one of the things we can learn from him is exactly here. Does somebody have 1 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6? All right, would you read it for me? Therefore, I do not 
We're going to stop you there. Now, let's see real quick. What did, what did Jesus just do for this church? Uh-huh. And it's interesting because he will bring light to the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Would you say that's what he's done? Now, he's going to do it individually, but he's definitely doing it for his churches. I love this because when we look at these words and we see what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, this is to another church. He's saying, when the Lord comes. All right. So again, let's go back to the first uh, verse here. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars, the one who walks along the seven lampstands. He is there. And he is saying to them, this is what I see. Okay. All right. So there you see in scripture exactly what he is calling out, right? Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. So let's talk about that because this is what this really reminded me of all the churches. Let's talk about the compliment sandwich. How are you supposed to give correction? You compliment? You compliment again, correct? What do you see here? Kind of the same thing. I'm thinking Jesus came up with it. What do you think? I'm just, you know, we all want to take credit for it. I think he kind of came up with it. Okay. Sure. Therefore, but, yep. And uh, I'm in, I'm reading Solomon's works right now. And he says, in conclusion, we have to get through 12 chapters and then it's in conclusion. But that's the idea. That's the main point. So let's focus on that main point now. All right. But now what does he say? I have, I'm back in Revelation 2. I have this against you. I have this against you. Whew. I do not want to hear those words. I have this against you. All right, what's his charge? I made a new word. All right, you have left your first love. That's his charge. All right, and then he gives him another statement. Therefore... All right, and that's where I'm going to stop right there for now. You have left your first love. This is called a reproof or a rebuke. So some of you may have done, because I know you're Katie students, you may have done uh, the word studies. What did you come up with for first? Yours on your laptop. <laughs> you did them. Yeah. That's, that's fine. So first is number G4413. If you don't know what G is, I always do this because sometimes my students don't know. G is for Greek, right. New Testament is in Greek. Very good. You guys are great students. I can tell. The word is actually, looks like protos. Okay. And what did you find out it meant? So this is Greek, it's protos. So what did you come up with? Best. best. So it means best, 
first, chief, principal, okay? And I love this, it also means before. So you have left your first, your best, your chief, your principal, the very beginning love. Huh, just using those words, which love do you think they're talking about? Foundational, Foundational love, yeah. I love that. First, best, first, chief, principal, and before. Okay. Some people wonder, why do we go back to the original Greek? Why do we go back to the original Hebrew? It's because words, again, just as language evolves, they get watered down, they change meanings, and it's always good to go back to see what we're talking about. Okay. All right. Your first love. So let's talk that one. Love. I'm going to write that up here. Love. It's an important one. All right. Anybody do this one? Or y'all know it? G26. Anybody want to guess what type of love this is? Uh-huh. All right. So this is a brotherly love. It is an affection. It is a goodwill. All right. So this is kind of a strange thing that Jesus threw out. Not really strange to the church, but strange in terms of, I'm going to give you all these things you've done really, really well. And then he calls them out, but you've left your first love. All right. I told you a little bit about Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Ephesians 1, 15, 16. Because I want you to see what Paul says about them. Yeah, 1, 15, and 16. What does he say? All right. Huh. Okay, so what has happened from Paul to Revelation? To the Ephesian church? You've left it. Mm-hmm. 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 This is a really good thing because it's, it's one of those balances we find in the church. So I'm just going to real quick because we're here and I think it'll help you with this understanding. When you come to Christ, we're going to use big words now. The first thing we do is we accept him. We call that in biblical study or if you want to go, um, if we were going to call out, we call that justification. Have you heard those words? Right. So he doesn't have a problem with their justification, by the way. That, that's not what he's talking about. What's he calling out? He's calling out their sanctification. Now, I want you to understand, and then, of course, in case you've never heard them, glorification. I want to put those out there. Sanctification is what happens after you've accepted Christ and the Holy Spirit goes to work on you and you grow in your faith. It's our response to him. 
That's our sanctification. So I want to call this out real quick. Okay? So this is second generation. Most of them probably do not have firsthand knowledge of Christ. And I also want to point this out. The Jewish understanding of sanctification is that you couldn't have works without the love. They had to go together. They didn't ever speak of love without works because they're inseparable. In their understanding, that's what they understood love to be. There was always good works to go with your love. They're not, yeah. So what has kind of happened in this church? And why have they separated? We're further generations down. And so he's holding them to accountability. They have to go. That's true. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Habit. I did this because my mama did it this way. Mm-hmm. 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 I think it's interesting because what were they known for? Perseverance and their brotherly love. Like, that's what Paul said. I'm calling you out because you have great brotherly love. They're a model for people. And then what does Jesus do in Revelation? You've left your first love. I love that because that shows you Something has happened between Ephesus's first founding and when we see John write this book. And so Jesus is calling them out, not because he doesn't care about them, but he does care about them and says, I'm going to hold you to a higher standard. Okay? I love this. All right. So most Ephesian Christians were second generations, and they thought they had retained purity of doctrine and life. And they maintained this high level of service. So here's a question I want to ask you. In our churches today, do you see a lot of service? Well, we do this and this and this, right? We do this, this, and this. That's what I love to talk to people because they will tell me what their church is doing, okay? But Jesus was calling them out and saying, how are you loving? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Again, like I said, Paul, when he wrote the letter to Ephesus, Paul is very much a Jew. So he was putting this understanding of works and love together. So again, over time, being in a Gentile area, being the fourth largest city in the world, I am guessing they had encountered a lot. And they're still reaching out, and they're still doing service, and they're still well-known. But again, we want to make sure that those services and all they're doing isn't just lip service, it's from justification. Okay. So we want to make sure that those things are in place. Yes. Sure. So it's listed as agape. And yeah, I would say probably um, that thing, as from what I understood, it was the agape. But what would you think more it would be? The brotherly love? Okay. Well, let's look it up. That's why I love the internet. 
you know, I am one of those people. I may have gotten it wrong. I love it because Revelation is like, you know, the last book. So you can just go right there. Okay. Okay. Well, I like Wikipedia, but I'm going to make sure I can back it up with some biblical references. <laughs> That's always the problem. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I have 26 in my understanding, um, but I like your other thing. Let's go with um, what you said about the other love on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ah, so this is kind of one of those things I'm just going to throw out there, see what you think. So he's talking more not of a feeling, but of a covenant type love. The importance of correcting those are Yep. All right. We're going to get back to the first love. All right. But again, um, I put this in my notes. Um, I think, and you'll get these later. The understanding, the Jewish understanding of first love in that um, was a marriage relationship, a covenant relationship was their understanding as well, but also partnerships like you see between businesses and that. It was one that um, they held very esteemed. You had to have these relationships. So for them, when you studied the Torah, when you studied um, together, they would hold, the people studying would hold you to accountability. So the idea was that you didn't enter into Christianity on your own. You entered into it with other people who would help keep you on the straight and narrow. That was the idea, understanding of the early church. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so we'll move through this. All right. So let's talk about first loves. I put two of these in your notes. I think you'll like them. Let's go. Most of you know this one. Let's go with Mark. And now I'm out of it. Let's go with Mark 12. Uh, verse 30. Most of you know this one. You can quote it. And you shall love who? Mm-hmm. With? Mm-hmm. All right, this, again, I'm just giving you some understanding of first love. And then I also want to pull out 1 John 4, 19. We love, why? Yep.
So one of the things that happens as we move along our Christian walk that I think is very important to point out, and I'll just point this out to you, we have a tendency to base people on love because of whether we like them or not. But we are supposed to love people because Jesus first loved us, right? That's the idea. We love because he first loved us. So there's some of these things that I want you to understand is in this understanding of your first love. Okay, so I pulled out my old notes from Katie, and she did a great job of doing this um, when we did this 10 years ago. So I want to do it here, and if she sees this, she'll be like, oh, she learned something. Um, Because I did. I take this a lot. Oh, I know she will. I know she will. All right, so using just the text before you, tell me what, I'm gonna have to get a new marker, sorry. I think so, and you know what? I'm a teacher, I have a fresh batch. Never go anywhere without markers. All right. According to the text, what is first love not? Let's, let's talk about that. It is not what? Deeds. Uh-huh. It's not enduring evil, evil men. It's not. Mm-hmm. Not testing, I'll say. Or let's see, I'll just read it testing. Testing false teachers. Not testing. Uh-huh. Not enduring. And growing weary. So real quick, first love is not deeds, toils, perseverance, growing weary, enduring evil men, not testing and not enduring. Those things are not your first love. What are they? We just talked about sanctification. What are they? Yeah, they're fruit is what they are. But you need to return back to your first love. It's not wrong. By the way, these are not wrong, um, uh, doing these things. Okay? Correct. That's your source. Because if you don't have the source, you are going to get very weary, right? We're going to get very weary. One of the things in Titus that I needed to hear when I taught it, which I thought was a really good thing for me to remember, and it's exactly what Katie and I um, are doing, and that is it's our responsibility to teach the church because that's the gift God puts in us, but we are not alone. We are not the only ones teaching. And it's okay to ask someone else to cover you, or it's okay to hold someone accountable. It's okay. And that's one of the things that I think is really important as our church is because we forget over time, we have a tendency to think my ministry or what I'm doing is the most important. We're part of a body. And so we should be holding people up. Okay? 
All right, so you guys did some cross-references. We're going to work through a couple of those now. Let's talk about Deuteronomy 28 through 30. If you want to look at your notes. They're inseparable. That's your fruit. So here's the question. And this is, I will give you the, the flip side. Can you do good works and not love God? That's what we're challenging. We want to make sure we always do them with our first in place. Yeah. So here's what happens. And again, I teach a lot um, all over Austin. And so I've heard a lot of these things. You guys have probably heard them as well. Well, the God I believe in. That's idolatry. If you don't know, that's idolatry. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? But that's what people say. Well, the God I believe in wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's idolatry. Thank you for the definition. That's what I usually say. Thank you. <laughs> Great teaching example. Um, but that's what people do because we want to make God down at our level so we understand him. But that's not what this says. Love your God with everything you have. Yeah. And that's what Revelation is such a great book for is it helps you understand he's coming back. He is all powerful and he is sovereign. He's sovereign over the churches. He's calling them to accountability. He will call all of us to accountability. And so one of the things I think is important as time has gone on, people have said, well, your understanding of God is, you know, um, he has, it hasn't happened yet. I'm probably still good. Have you heard that? I have time. And exactly, we should be expecting him every day every day. By the way, Katie lives her life. She's expecting him anytime, um, which I really, anytime there, he's coming. And I love that. Right. Anytime. God gave me a really great understanding of this when we were selling our house, because, you know, before the Austin market went a little nutty, um, a couple of years ago, I would prep the house for people to come through it every day, but I would clean the house whether they came or not, because I didn't know. And one day I was having this um, God usually brings things to mind as I'm vacuuming or doing dishes or something. And I was vacuuming and he was, this is expecting me. I am coming. So get your vacuums out. <laughs> right. He's coming. That's right. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you guys uh, saw these in Deuteronomy 28 and 30. Um, from the time God gave the law to Israel, he called his people to love him with all their heart. So let's talk about Israel. Did they do it? Nope. They loved him with part of their heart. Um, none of their heart, some of their heart. Um, and to love God is to follow his commands, right? Because again, in Old Testament, again, the understanding of works and love went together. So I want you to understand that. 
So again, he had called them to obedience. Okay. So I want to show you a great example of a first love. I'm going to pull this out. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Chronicles 22. My page turned, sorry. Oh. I'm going to change that. It's actually uh, First Chronicles 28, so a few pages over. I want to read to you something David said to the people of Israel before his death. Chapter 28, verse 4. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all of my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as a leader, and in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all of Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he's chosen Solomon to sit on the throne. And they said, Solomon will build your house, for I have chosen him. And by the way, very unique here. He will be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues. Now, therefore, in sight of all of Israel and the assembly of the Lord and the healing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for inheritance to your children. And I love this specific one for his son. Know that God, your father, uh, and you, Solomon, my son, know that the God of your father and serve him with the whole heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, you, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. One of the things I love about this, and I just want to point this out, David is making a declaration at the end of his life. What is David known for? Do you see, this is a few years before he dies, pretty close to his death. Do you see this man who has been after God's heart? Now what is he concerned about? What is he telling him? Be after his heart. Go after it. Seek, you will find him. I love that because this is what I think of when I'm reading this letter to the church. This is what Jesus is calling them out to do. Live your life so that those that come after you will seek me with their whole heart. Because what's happening is, is we're not holding to the purity of it. And so we're getting away from your first love. Okay. All right. Okay. Are we good? All right. We'll keep moving. So we did some cross references and we talked a little bit about the Acts church. And I want to talk a little bit about that. It was filled with love. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to prayer and sharing. They demonstrated their love. They were of one heart and soul. And so um, that's what we see in Acts. Okay. All right. So then he gives them, uh, called them out, and then he said, remember. All right. So what does remembrance mean, those of you who are good Bible students? Call to mind. Yep. Mm-hmm. I love this. Here's a word from today. Be mindful. Call to mind. 
An attitude and action. I like it. Attitude and action. This would be your understanding of sanctification. So here's the basic understanding for those of you who are in the church and understand this. Sanctification is us and our fruit towards the world so people want to be like us. That's the idea. We are doing acts of service, but we're doing them with a heart towards God. People can do acts of service. Most of the time, though, they are persevering. Most of the time, there will come a time when they fall away from it because they don't have that source, the lampstand, the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, to keep going forward. Okay? All right. And he says, from remember, from, remember from where you have fallen. All right. So we did some verb tenses. What did you guys find out? From where you have fallen. Mm -hmm. It's a completed action, right? It's a completed action, fallen. All right. So this is one of the fun things about teaching that I just love to do. All right. We're going to go to Jonah. If you have your Bibles, open your book to Jonah. We're going to Jonah. Ephesus and Jonah. I didn't know they went together. I think you'll see they kind of do. So the book of Jonah is after um, a lot of your minor prophets. Mm-hmm. Yep. Am I, it's always fun to try to find in my Jewish Bible because I'm like, that's not where it's supposed to be. All right. Okay. So I'm going to start on chapter two. And if you have chapter one, I'm going to just read the last line. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. All right, so it's great fish. He's been swallowed. We know the story, right? All right, so go to verse 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Right? So I just want to point out, it took a while for Jonah to pray. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So we call Jonah the reluctant prophet. I think it's a good example of being a reluctant Christian. Um, <laughs> yep. I'm going to sit here for three days, then I'm going to pray. All right. I would have been praying in the water, in the thing, getting on the wrong ship. Like, so this just goes to show you it's a great example. All right. So I want to go into the word fallen. This is interesting. If you do the Greek word on this, the word fallen actually means to be cast ashore. What? Scripture and Bible, do you know that somebody was cast ashore? How did Jonah get cast ashore? <laughs> huh. So, is Jonah a good book to reference because who also quoted it? Jesus. It's very important to point that out. A lot of people have said this is a fable. I just want to point that out to you. Jesus called it out and said no. So listen to this, and I think you will, <clears throat> again, understand what, what Jesus is asking the church of Ephesus. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of shell, I've cried, and you've heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. 
The water closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, your my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love, but I will, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord vomited Jonah upon the dry land. <laughs> so I have a question. This is a fallen person. Would you not agree? So that kind of sees, I want to go back to this. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Did Jonah have a clue where he had fallen? He did now. <laughs> Took him a while. But when we're talking about Ephesus, I want you to understand, as we become successful, as the church gains some notoriety, as you start working in communities, we forget that without God, it's pointless. It's all vanity. And sometimes we have a tendency to think, I deserve it, right? But again, this is where that brokenness comes in. Remember where you have fallen. Call to mind. Be mindful continually. Um, you want to make sure you have that at the front of your mind. All right. So first, remember you've fallen. What's the second thing you're going to do? I love it. One, remember. Two, repent. All right. Those of you are very good Bible students. What does repent mean? Mm -hmm. Means turn around. I'm going to tell you one of the greatest things that happened in my life. I was getting ready to go teach. Everybody was telling me what I should be teaching when I went over to teach some women in Lebanon. They were Syrian. And God really put on my heart to teach Ruth. So I was in a plane. I was flying over. And they didn't have internet on the plane. And so I was trying. I told God, I said, if there's anything you want me to know about Ruth. And I'd done all the work. I was just focusing on it. I don't have internet. You're going to have to do something amazing. There's a little young lady in front of me with bright red hair. I looked over the seat and saw I had a Bible. And then she got so excited. She just... And I, luckily, God had made it so I, I had all the tray tables down because I'm a Bible student. So I had all that stuff out. And she just completely, she goes, then she asked me, she said, what you doing? I said, I'm, I'm studying. She goes, I'm a Bible student. I said, oh, I'm so happy. I go, uh, I'm in Germany. I said, that's great. She goes, um, so I only know a few things. And I said, well, that's okay. I said, what do you know? Well, we're in the book of Ruth. And we're just in the Hebrew for the book of Ruth. And I just started laughing. I said, uh-huh. And what's your takeaway? Did you know the whole book of Ruth is about turning around? And I went, oh, my gosh. Yes, that's what I needed. I got off that plane. I was like, I know I'm supposed to teach Ruth. But here's the thing. That's the whole concept. Your scriptures are filled with repentance and turning away. Ruth turned away. She turned away from her idolatry. She turned away from what she knew. She followed after God with her own heart. That's part of this. We have to repent. Okay? So here he is calling out the church. Repent and do the deeds as you did at first. So talking about the early church. What were some of those early deeds? Spreading the gospel. They gathered together often. They bred together. They prayed. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. On an economy built on the goods, selling of goods, you would have noticed if your neighbors started selling stuff and doing this. Do them at first. Okay? All right. And then he said what? Kind of the, the action that he's going to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is there any other threat that he could have given them? You're one of my lampstands. If you don't repent. Okay, let's talk about Israel. You're my people. I will put you on the land. You will do what I say or and obey me or I will remove you. Seems to be a theme. <laughs> Just saying. So I want you to kind of get this. I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Unless what? You turn away. Yep. You turn away. And again, let's talk about what they were doing. Go back to what they were doing. They were doing good things. It's not wrong to do good things. It's wrong to ignore him. Remember who he is. Remember why you're doing these things. But I just think about our churches. Do you think that there are a lot of churches that exist to do good things and we've kind of gotten away from who Jesus is? Right? And the point is, if you don't do those good things because of Jesus, they don't get it. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Well, and I think this is a good example. People use this in churches all the time, but I think in Austin it makes a really good point for us that live here. You know, a lot of people don't understand tithing. You wish people talk about it in churches, but people don't want to talk about it. So when we talk about giving in Austin, the average church attendee, the average person across the board, it's around 2%. The average person in Austin gives 3% of their money away. So now we have, that's what we're talking about. We're the church. We're the church. So the average person gives away, and they're not supporting churches. What are they supporting? Good works. Animals. Like animals. Things like that. So here's where you get into this. The church is the lampstand. We should be pointing people to Jesus and our deeds and our behavior. Okay. All right. All good? All right. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to get down to six. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lamps down out of its place until you repent. And just real quick, um, 
so that you're aware, this is found in Acts 2, 4, and 5. What was the love of the church in the beginning? It was devoted to their teaching. They were praying and sharing. They were demonstrating their love for, for each other. They were of one heart. That's what he's calling them out. We're not seeing that. So here's kind of what happens in the church. I'm just going to share this with you. We become outward focused, which is really good, but not inward focused. We're not only supposed to take care of those outside. Who are we supposed to also take care of? People in the church, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have one of the things I will tell you. I have a student right now who's going through cancer. She doesn't attend my church, um, but she's going through cancer aggressive. She's had lots and lots of chemo. She's now going through radiation. And one of the things I told her was, I'm going to walk with you all through this. She's on Zoom a lot, and I will see her through her cancer treatment. She shows up even when she doesn't feel like it. She's there. She's consistent. But I told my class, one of the reasons we've prayed for every week that we meet, and one of the reasons why is we're supposed to demonstrate what love looks like to the rest of the church. It's not, oh, I'm so sorry you have cancer and walk away, or be there at the beginning. We walk with people through things. That's the church. That's the way we're supposed to be. We're supposed to have love that doesn't match anything out there. We are his. Okay? Yay! By the way, so awesome we get to talk about God all the time. It's one of my favorite things to do. Can you tell? Okay. All right. All right. Yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolotians. So let's talk about that. So let's talk about what they were doing. Some of you did some research. If you're like me, you're like, that's a weird word. Let's go find out what it means. All right. What did you find out about them? Mm -hmm. Balaam. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And who was Nicholas? Mm-hmm. So Nicholas was a part of the church, but he got into heresy. Okay. Now this is interesting. This is just fun stuff to know. Nicholas and Balaam are the exact same words. One's Hebrew and one's Greek. Isn't that interesting? I ran across that. I was like, oh, that's cool. Okay. So what was, what was this teaching? Unrestrained indulgence. Specifically immorality and idolatry. Correct. Uh-huh. Now, this is kind of interesting. If you don't know this, we have two commandments to follow, which is what? You just read them. What are our two commandments? And there are two things that God himself cannot stand, and they are immorality and idolatry. One takes you away from his first love. The other one pollutes his first love. Those are his two biggies. If you didn't know... These are the biggies. So what were they doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I love this. He says, yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of them, which I also hate. Yeah, I could have told you that. Yep, he would hate those. 
unrestrained indulgence and a false prophet. All right, so now that we have those um, kind of figured out, they followed the doctrine of Balaam. This is Old Testament, if you don't know this. Um, followers of Nicholas, he was a member of the church, but he stepped off into heresy because he believed that you could practice these things and have love. So they were doing orgies, um, feasting, indulgence of the flesh is a better way to say it. In Jewish history, Balaam was always the symbol of an evil man who led God's people into immorality and sin. So in the New Testament, I would say that it's Nicholas who is the person. Okay. All make sense? All right. We're going to get over the last line. So again, seven. Uh, we went through seven lines of scripture today, but isn't it great to slow down and do that? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who, what does the word overcome mean? I'm just curious, do you know? Persevere, that'd be one. Him who overcomes, stay steadfast. Any of these seem familiar to you? To successfully resist a force that's attempting to change your Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So an overcomer. So if you're an overcomer, are we overcomers? Yes. We are. We are overcomers. We are overcome. So God will deliver you from, through, or to him. All of those are okay with me. I will be delivered from it uh, by his provincial hand. I will be delivered through it, or I will be delivered to him because of persecution. Okay with all of those. Okay, because I will be an... Um, Overcomer. I will go through it. All right. Now, here's what my students all say. I don't want to suffer. They're in the wrong business. Right? Because we aren't suffering for our sakes. We're suffering. Yep. We are the lampstand right now. That is our job. We're to take it seriously. Um, we are to overcome. Because, again, we are modeling for every generation out coming after us. One of the things I will tell you that I take very seriously is that we have not done a good job of that because look at some of the stuff in our world. We are to stay straight. We don't keep moving that line according to whatever we think. It's very hard to think you should do that because we don't want to. Yeah, anytime we have something like that, yeah. I'm going through this stuff. It's awesome. Yeah. So I taught James, uh, last year I taught James um, James, Daniel, and James and Daniel had me going back to Job, and I told everybody it was like the Bermuda Triangle. Um, I just kept bumping between those because of all the stuff going on there. All right, and so one of the things, real quick, overcomers, you get the tree of. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the tree of life. What is the tree of life? Mm -hmm. What is it referencing? Reference the Garden of Eden. My notes have this in case you're curious. And that's in 322. Okay. Um, it's also listed in Revelation. You haven't gotten there yet, but it's 22-2. That is your new Jerusalem. What does it do? Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is... Mm-hmm. 
That's what it's referencing. So let's put that in then. To, who, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is where? It's where we're at. If we're in the paradise of God, it's kind of named for him, we are with him. Right? <laughs> we are with him. And by the way, if we seek him, we will. And he is going to be there for us. I love this because just a few things here. Those who eat will never die. Um, this should be a normal expectation for all Christians. I don't think we spend enough time talking about the wrath of God. Uh, my husband made me laugh because uh, he listened to one of my recordings. He said, so proud of you. 12 seconds, you said wrath of God. Way to go. <laughs> you go, gun. Go, go, go. Anyway, it was really funny. But that's exactly it. We don't spend a lot of time. Why is there wrath? Because there's also life. Why is there death? Because he gave us life. Okay. Love for God is not legalistly overseeing commands, but by responding to one's knowledge and appreciation of God's love. That is your sanctification. The tree of life, according to Jewish teaching, is wisdom, fruit of the righteous, desire fulfilled, and a wholesome tongue. Does that seem pretty familiar to all the teachings of Paul? The tree of life is to describe wisdom, which would be, by the way, your Holy Spirit, fruit of righteousness, desire fulfilled, and a wholesome tongue. All aspects of what we will experience of eternal life. Okay. So his conclusion, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. I think I'm done. Yeah.